Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to start um, looking at verse 18. Matthew chapter 4. In your, the Pew Bible in front of you, that's page 677. Uh, and you can follow along, although I chose to use a different, um, a different uh, translation this morning. Uh, I, I'm not a Bible translator myself, uh, but I, I'm, a, I'm an armchair linguist, and I'm an armchair Bible translator, and I've taken enough Greek to be dangerous, okay? Uh, but this, this version of the New International Version was um, revised, say, two or three years ago because language changes. Language changes. There always need to be, we always need to go back and revise things, look, look at things again and say, is that clear enough? Did we translate that correctly? Something like that. Well, in this version, the way they translated part of this passage, I was just like, oh, please, come on. Don't do that. There's a way we say it. There's a way we say it, and, and, and the, this translation didn't, didn't quite put it that way. So I'm using the Revised Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, which the New Testament of the Revised Standard Version was last revised in 1946. Uh, so anyway, how many of you remember 1946? I, I actually don't believe that you remember 1946. <laughs> But I do believe you may have been alive then. Do you remember 1946? He claims he does. Okay. Uh, and for him, I'll let, I'll let him uh, go ahead and make that statement. I won't, I won't contradict. But of these two over here, I'm not going to say, I don't know about that. All right. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Uh, and let me, let, me, let me build you up to this moment. Uh, in, in the book of Matthew, remember, Matthew wrote this gospel uh, and his intent is to convince you, if you had any doubts, to convince you that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. A lot of people were falling away. They were saying, you know what, I tried Jesus out. I'm going to go back into uh, regular Old Testament Judaism. But, but Matthew says, no, 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 Everything he does, everything the Old Testament is, points right straight to Jesus. And the first thing that Matthew does is give the genealogy of Jesus. And it starts where? It starts with Abraham. See, even at Abraham, it's all pointing right straight uh, to Jesus. Uh, and then as we move along in the, in the uh, book of Matthew, we see uh, the birth of Jesus and how it had local impact, but it also had global impact. It was certainly uh, felt in the, the city of Bethlehem and not in a great way. But the Magi came from afar because God announced the birth of his son, not just locally to the shepherds, but globally to the Magi, to other countries. Uh, so there, it, it had that, that big of an impact. And then as we see Jesus grow up and go out and get baptized by John the Baptist. We see God the Father looking over him and saying, this is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him. And it's time for him to start his ministry. And for any of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, because of the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to you. That is the theological term. That basically means you're getting credit for his good works. He got credit for your bad works and suffered on the cross for it. You get credit for his good works, and the Lord looks over you because you believe in him. You have become his child, and he says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And then after that, Jesus goes to be tempted by the devil. And remember that God never uh, lets temptation or trial or anything bad come into your life to make you fall. He never does that to make you fall. He does not want to ruin you, but he does want to prove you. He does want to prove you. So any time a temptation or a trial or anything difficult comes your way, how are you supposed to, uh, to look at it? Most of us will look at it and say, 
what is going on here? Why doesn't God love me? Why, why is God hammering on me and pouring all this on me? And no, what he's saying is, I'm putting you in a high-pressure situation. Uh, and I'll go ahead and use a bunch of sports metaphors. It's fourth and one, and he wants you to go for it. All right? It's the bottom of the ninth, and the score is tied, and you're at the plate, and it's full count, and there's two outs. There's nobody, there's no chances left. Here comes the pitch. Are you going to hit it out of the park and, and win the whole game? And he wants to put you in those situations to prove you because he thinks, he thinks you're good enough. You're, he thinks with his spirit's empowerment in your life, you can withstand all trial, all temptation, and you can hit it out of the park. You can do whatever, uh, with his help, whatever situation he puts you in, you can come through. You can come through. He did not put you into any of these difficult situations to ruin you. And then last week, and Jesus proves that, he was put into a very tense situation, very difficult situation, very high-pressure temptation, facing the devil himself. And Jesus hit it out of the park. He was proven that way. Then last week, we saw Jesus knowing now who his mission field is, and he's going up to Galilee to start uh, his ministry. And this week, we see him taking sort of the next step, the next phase. He started preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is here. It has come, and it's also coming in the future. And this week, he's going to start making disciples. And as a church, as Christian people, our command, the last command that he gave before he ascended to the Father is go make disciples, make disciples of all nations. Replicate yourself uh, in everyone that you meet. Proclaim the message and then know who they are supposed to follow and what it looks like to follow me. So let's start reading here. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. And Lord, please help us as we study your word this morning in Jesus' name. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And that is the, the, the verse that in, in this NIV it says, I will make you fish for people. Uh, and, and I just didn't like that because we've always said, I will make you fishers of men. It's a more beautiful statement. It's a metaphor, but I think it's a metaphor that everybody can understand. And the way they've translated it here, it's sort of, well, it's still a metaphor. You didn't, you didn't take away any of the confusion. You just made it less poetic is all you did. So there's my beef with the, the modern NIV. And I have a few other beefs with it too, but this is the only one in this book. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and, his, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, don't think that Jesus didn't know these guys before. He didn't just come up to a bunch of random strangers uh, and... Um, and say, hey, come follow me. Although there's no stranger to Jesus in the world. He knows each one of us. And he is calling you. You may feel like he's a stranger to you, but I promise you, he's calling you because he knows you and he knows what you need in your life. So please, come follow him. But uh, Andrew and Peter, uh, where, did they, where were they from? They grew up in a town called Capernaum. In our passage last week, we see that Jesus had moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. He knew these guys and he had known them for a a little while. 
And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, I have heard, and I have never really heard a good explanation, but I heard a theologian say that they actually, that he actually thought that James and John may have even been distant relatives of Jesus somehow. And I guess if you look at the family relations of Jesus and the list of women who were following Jesus, there might be some kind of connection there to even suggest that they were, uh, they were related, okay? So Jesus didn't call these guys, they were not random strangers to him. They knew Jesus, and they knew what he was about. They may not have had a full picture of who Jesus is. Everybody had a kind of a distorted or, or uh, incorrect view of what uh, the Messiah would be and who Jesus would be and what the great prophet from God would do. But they knew enough to say, I was there. I was there when he was baptized. I heard the booming voice. I've seen his works. I've heard some of his preaching. I know what this guy is, uh, is about. And they found Jesus compelling enough to say, I have a life and now I'm going to walk away from it. I have a family, and I'm going to walk away from it because he is that compelling. How compelling does a person have to be for you to say, you know what? I had things to do. I had a job. I had responsibilities. I had hobbies. I had a house. I had land. I had whatever. But this guy, him, his personality, his message, the hope that he's promising, it's so compelling. I'm going to walk away from all of it. I'm going to walk away from all of it. And Jesus did some things here that were a little unorthodox. Normally, the rabbi didn't go out and, uh, and, and, and choose his disciples. Most of the time, the disciples or young men who wanted to be the disciples of a rabbi would follow them around begging, begging to be their disciples. I'll do anything you want. I'll, I'll do all your laundry. I'll do all your, I'll cook all the, I'll do whatever it takes. Can I please, please follow you and hear your, hear your teaching? And here was Jesus going to these guys. And later in the, in the gospels, you'll find that nobody respected these guys. They were unlearned men. They called them, in, in the book of Acts, they said, these are unlearned men. How can they have so much of an impact in the world? They, they don't have any education. They're not from the right stock. They don't have the right pedigree. They probably never thought that they might have a chance to follow a rabbi, which was a big deal for them. And here comes the rabbi, the great prophet, the Messiah, the one that they believed was the Messiah. And he says, you may not believe this, but I'm choosing you. I've got a whole bunch of people out here who have probably got the Torah more memorized than you. But I want you. I want you. And you may not feel very worthy yourself either. You may not feel like you have the right pedigree. You may not uh, have ever had any kind of Christian heritage in your life. You, you may come from a family where Christian heritage or church heritage is so far back, nobody even knew what denomination anybody ever came from in your family. And Jesus says, I'll take you. Everybody else is done with you. Everybody else has written you off. Guess what? I'll take you. You may be unlearned in this book, but you learn Jesus, and you'll know this book. And so they dropped everything to follow Jesus. And I will tell you this, Jesus is worth you dropping everything for. He is worth it. I don't know what kind of job you've got. I don't know what kind of hobbies you have. I don't know uh, what kind of goals or meaning or purpose you, you had uh, formulated for your life. So many people these days have no, no meaning or, or, or goal or anything formulated in their life. That's worth dropping too. Drop your purposelessness. And what other purpose you had that is of no eternal consequence, 
that is not centered around Jesus Christ, it's worth dropping it for so that you can follow Jesus, I promise. Um, about 10 days ago, I, I suppose, we went to go see the Downton Abbey movie. The Downton Abbey movie. And if you don't know what that is, fine, don't watch it, okay? Um, but it's in England. It's all set in England about 100 years ago. And as good Americans, none of us believe that anybody's any better than any of us, right? All right? King George, who in the world is that? Why in the world would I bow the knee to him? Da, 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 da. No taxation without representation, blah, 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 okay? But in that society, in that society, people begrudged it. Don't, don't think that people, didn't, that people just loved it. But you knew who was better than you. You knew who was from a higher caste or whatever from you. And when you were in their presence, you didn't speak unless spoken to. You bowed, you curtsied, you did whatever. And when they gave you an order, it was, yes, my Lord. Yes, my Lord. And we don't have that in our culture here, okay? Nobody's yes, my Lord around here. We don't even use sir and ma'am like we used to. We don't even use Mr. and Mrs. like we used to. Everybody here is on equal ground. And I don't ever want to swing to a, 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 what do they call it, a feudal system where we have nobles and commoners, and the nobles always are better just by virtue of their birth. I, I don't ever want to go to that system. But how far are we going to swing in the other direction where it's not like over here we've made everybody kings and queens. We've pulled everybody down sometimes. Maybe not all of us. But it seems sometimes like we're not treating each other like we're all kings and queens. We treat each other like Everybody's a nobody. I'm a nobody, so I'm going to bring everybody else down to my level. Make them a nobody too. Treat them like a nobody. I don't think that's the right way to go about fixing the caste system. Okay? Now, why did I say all that? Because I want you to get a grasp of the majesty of Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than you. Jesus is better than me. Whatever education level or whatever socioeconomic level I'm from, whoever I am, whatever status I might achieve in this life, Jesus is better than me. And in his presence, I don't just bow. I don't just offer a firm handshake. I don't think I would even just bow the knee. Anybody in the Bible that sees Jesus falls on their face before him. He's better than me. And if he beckons me, I better pay attention because he is my Lord and he is my king. He is your majesty, even to an American, okay? He is worth dropping everything for. He is worthy of you dropping everything for. But I just want to go ahead and give you the guarantee, the trade-off of whatever pride you have to lay down in order to call him your Lord, it's worth it. Whatever tangibles you have to drop in order to follow him, whatever goals, purposes you had to, you have to drop in order to follow him, the trade-off is worth it. Because everything that he gives back to you is of eternal consequence. So if it's nets, if it's boats, if it's career, if it's whatever status you wanted to get otherwise, if Jesus is calling you to drop it and follow him, do it. You'll be glad you did. Maybe not to today, maybe not tomorrow, 
but soon and for the rest of eternity. You'll be glad you did. Let's also take a look at this sort of from the, the standpoint of Jesus. Jesus, knowing who he is, very secure in who he is, God is my Father, he's well pleased with me, and he's given me a mission. And I know what that mission is, and that mission is to save the whole world, transform the whole world by bringing everybody back to the righteous relationship that they had with God before. You see, when sin entered the world, everything was ruined. Our connection with God, ruined. Our connection with each other, ruined. Our connection with the earth, ruined. Everything is damaged. And so it's nothing but chaos and conflict everywhere we go. When, when Adam sinned, the Lord said, you're going to work the ground all your life. You're going to plant good seed, and weeds are going to shoot up. You know this. If you have a garden, you know this. You know what a struggle it is to have a nice, productive garden, whether it's flowers or fruits and vegetables or whatever. You know what a struggle it is. And that's with the earth. Everybody has a struggle with their work. Everything you do seems to work against you. Whatever you fix is going to break worse the next time. It happens. But it's not just that. Your relationship with other people, people that you ought to have good relationship with. The people that you have the most difficult relationship with often are the people that are just like you, right? Shouldn't you, have, shouldn't you see eye to eye on everything? Shouldn't you have this perfect relationship with somebody that you're almost exactly like? Shouldn't that go right together? And instead, what do you have? You have conflict, a lot of conflict. And the easiest relationship that any human being ought to ever have is with God, God your creator, God who knows you inside and out, God that you can be perfectly honest and vulnerable in front of. But we have a terribly, terribly difficult relationship with him, with each other, and with our work and everything that he wants us to do in this world. Ugh. And Jesus has come to straighten that out. The first thing he has done is gone to the cross so that you and God, there's no rift there. He's not angry at you. You may still be angry at him. He's not angry with you anymore. He poured out all of his wrath on the cross. He's good with you. Get good with him, all right? All of the anger that you have for God, just lay it aside and say, I realize now that that's misdirected. Let's try to have a good relationship again. I was angry at you, but I really should have been angry at myself or at some other person or whatever. And then, and then let him also, after he's healed this relationship, heal all the horizontal relationships in your life with other people. Now, Jesus has come into this world to mend all of that chaos. And the first thing he does after he starts preaching and everything, maybe not the first thing he does, but very early on, he chooses some people. He could have gone it alone. He was very effective alone. In fact, I would say his disciples held him back on more than one occasion. But his plan was to multiply himself, replicate himself in 12 people. So he chose 12 people. And remember, they weren't the worthy ones. Let's say, quote, unquote, worthy ones. They were the people... Um, who were fishermen. They weren't going into full-time ministry. They weren't going to be clergy. He took these guys. And he even took tax collectors and rebels and cutthroats. Simon the Zealot was a cutthroat. 
Judas Iscariot, we don't know a whole lot about him. He was a cutthroat and agreed. It didn't work out very well with Judas, okay? But the rest of them, they weren't particularly uh, clergy-like. But he took them and he said, I'm going to replicate myself in you. Maybe if, I'd have, if he'd have chosen a whole bunch of uh, clergy types, it may have, been, may have been much worse, may have been much harder. These guys, uh, maybe they were a little bit more moldable and teachable than a seminary student, okay? And so Jesus chooses these 12 guys, and he says, all right, I'm only going to be around for a little while. He, and I, I have no idea why the Lord said three years and you're back up here. I have no idea. Why wasn't it 20 years? Why wasn't it 50 years? Why, why was Jesus' ministry on earth so short? I don't know. But he said, the Father's going to have me, have me back in three years. I got three years with you. Let me teach you everything I can. Let me replicate myself in you. You won't be perfectly just like me, but you'll be close enough, all right? You'll be close enough that you can point people to me. And so he starts the very hard work of breaking down every lie that they ever believed. All the misguided theology, all the misguided piety that they uh, ever had, he starts breaking it down. And whenever, uh, whenever they have a question, they come to him, and he gives them very private teaching. It's wonderful what the Bible records as the private teaching of Jesus. Jesus brought, took his disciples aside, and he taught them this. He, he gave a mystery to the crowd, but he said, okay, I'm going to let you guys in on it. Okay? I'm going I'm to explain it clearly to you so that you will understand, because you need to, they've got more years than you do. I need you to understand this right now. And so Jesus starts replicating himself in these guys. And only, only when they had, only after the, the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the ascension, and with the coming of the Holy Spirit, did they finally say, oh, I get it all now. I understand it all now. And now I know exactly what to do because the Holy Spirit in my heart is now guiding me and transforming my mind. I know exactly what to do. I, I understand Jesus' mission now better than I ever had. And so they start becoming what a Christian is. Uh, and the word Christian, actually, God didn't give us the name Christians. He just called us his people, okay, his children. Uh, but there's a place, uh, there's a city called Antioch, and the people there started calling the Christian people little Christs. They're little Christ. They're like little Jesuses walking around, all right? That's what a Christian is. And so the disciples became like Christ. They became like Christ. And they started to turn the world upside down. Because one Jesus did a lot. And now these 12 little Christ, they're not exactly, they're not, they're not equal to him in any, in, any, uh, in any way. But the 12 of them started to do amazing things, amazing things. And on that first day that they started preaching, 3,000 people come to know the Lord, start following Jesus. All right, let me get, let me get to you, Okay. First of all, if you're not a believer, if you're not following Jesus, follow Jesus. I think I've emphasized that quite a bit. For those of you who have been following Jesus for a long time, great. It's time to start. It's time to start. If you've been following Jesus for a while, if you've had any kind of victory over sin, if you've had any kind of a spiritual experience with him, if you've been baptized, great. It's time to start. He's got ministry for you. He's got mission for you. He's got good works for you. It's time to start. And for those of you who've been doing this for a little while, if you've uh, been involved in, in some ministry for a while, and maybe you're the head of a ministry here at this church, this is what I want you to do. I want you to do what Jesus did, and I want you to replicate yourself. Jesus replicated himself so that um, the ministry could expand exponentially. After he left, where did the 12 disciples go? In 12 different places, 12 different directions. 
and the movement spread like wildfire. And so what do I want you to do? I want you to continue to follow the Lord, and I want you to continue to do your ministry, but I want you to start replicating yourself in people. A few years ago, um, the, one, the most visible ministry of this church is our food pantry. And a, a couple of years ago, I told Betty, Betty, start replicating yourself. I can't, in, in the organization that I was in in China, we had one uh, little niche, one little department of that ministry that was headed by the same person for about 10 years. And then that person left and nobody knew how to run it. Okay, they had created, and I don't think it was her fault. She just created a little fiefdom there. Maybe nobody ever asked. Maybe nobody ever said, hey, I'd like to know how this place is run. She just had it set up a certain way. And when uh, she left, guess what? We had to reinvent wheels because nobody knew how to invent a wheel. Nobody knew how to make a wheel. We had to go through a whole bunch of notes and papers and all this stuff and try to figure out how does this place run? How does this department, this, this part of the organization run? And it was difficult for several years uh, to, get that, uh, to get that going, okay? So, uh, so I told Betty, Betty, I want you to replicate yourself because we can't have just one person uh, who knows how the food pantry runs. And I think there are several people now who know uh, how the paperwork is done, how we get the food, how we distribute the food, and all kinds of things like that. And that's great. And it's not like we're ever interested in replacing anybody, but sometimes they'd like to take a vacation. And you need to have something running smooth while somebody's out sick or on vacation. Or, hey, guess what? Maybe one of these days, not them, surely, hopefully not them, but somebody gets transferred. Somebody has to move somewhere for a job, something like that. And you get to a church, and you've, you know how to run a food pantry. And somebody in that church stands up and says, there's a lot of poverty in our town, and we need to set up a food pantry to deal with the poverty uh, in our town. Does anybody around here know how that's done? One person can raise their hand and say, yeah, at the previous church I was in, I, I knew how the food pantry worked. Maybe I could help set that up. We want to replicate ourselves because Jesus may send many of you, in many different directions. And when you go, when you go, maybe this is a little pride on my part, I, I, it'll, and I'll cry in my pillow every night if you have to go somewhere else. But if you do have to go somewhere else, I want to know that I just sent another church a great asset. Okay? That's what I want. Maybe that's a prideful goal on my part, but I don't think so. I want to be able to send people out from this church to do wonderful things in other churches. I want everybody to say, boy, that church, that church over there, they send some quality people out. They train up some quality disciples, and they, and they have really helped our church. But we don't just have a food pantry. We've got a whole lot of other ministries here. Uh, raise your hand if you're involved in the children's ministry. Oh, wait a second. They're all back there. They're not. Um, but Sue is back there. Sue is more or less the, the head of our children's ministry. Caroline is up here. Raise your hand, Caroline. She's part of our children's ministry here. She, she's, she's a small person. She raised her hand this small, okay? All right. Betty's involved in our um, children's ministry. And there's somebody over here that does children's story time. I'm going to call that part of our children's ministry here too. We've got very humble people here who don't want to raise their hand and be recognized. But I want you, all of you to replicate yourself. And those of you, and they don't necessarily know who to replicate themselves into. In, but any of you who are drawn to whatever ministry here, gravitate, gravitate. These guys here, this wasn't the first time they met Jesus. They had gravitated in that direction, and Jesus knew who they were. Whatever ministry here, we've got 
we got a food pantry ministry. If you say, now that's my passion, serving people, helping the, the people of this community, that's my passion, great. Gravitate there on Friday at about noon, okay? Learn that ministry. If you're interested in children's ministry, you want to bless the children of this church, you gravitate towards those people who are involved in the children's ministry. If you're passionate about the upkeep of this wonderful building, we got a, a guy back here and a guy over here, Frank and Don. They're passionate about keeping this building uh, up and running and getting better all the time. Gravitate towards them. If you're uh, interested in teaching, teaching, you love this book and you can't stop talking about this book, excellent. Gravitate to me, okay? Gravitate to Diane. She's our Sunday school teacher. Gravitate towards people who do the things that you're also finding yourself passionate about. Jesus is not only calling you to follow him, he's calling you to serve in some capacity. Gravitate towards the people who are doing the job that you like doing, okay? And once you find you ministry heads, once you find people gravitating towards you, tell them everything you know. Everything you know about ministry, everything you know about what it is that you do, all the expectations, all the problems, all the headaches, and all the joy that you feel in serving in that way. And give them everything you've got. Give them everything you've got. Tell them everything that you know. There are people, uh, and I don't think this, I've never seen this in our church, but there are people I've seen in other churches far away from here who get threatened when somebody else comes in who might do their job as good as them. I'd love to teach everybody to preach and do my job. That way I can take a vacation anytime I want to, okay? I can feel free to get sick anytime I want to. And if a preacher gets sick, I promise you they get sick on Saturday night, okay? But I'd love to just look at the phone directory and say, <coughs> I can't preach tomorrow. <coughs> How about if I just do this? Oh, there's a good one. Because there are that many people capable of doing all the ministry in this church. All right. Jesus is calling. Follow him. You've been following him for a while? Good. Start ministering in his name. You've been ministering in his name for a long time? Good. Start talking to other people about the ministry that you do and noticing who gravitates towards you and start replicating yourself in them. Most churches, 20% 20, 20 of the people do 80% of the work. And sometimes that 20% doesn't want to give up that control. But a lot of times the 80%, they just don't know what to do. So you 20% who are doing all this, replicate yourself. Turn the 20% into the 40%, okay? Our church, uh, and this, is, this is something that Andy Stanley, he's a, he's a, he's a preacher. This is something he said that is, that is wonderful and beautiful and true and insulting all at the same time. Your church is perfectly engineered to get the results it's getting. Okay? That's perfectly logical, right? And if your church isn't getting the results that you wanted, it's quite an insult. But I think for us to go to the next level, all I would say is that the 20% who are doing the work right now need to replicate themselves into a 40%. And that 40% will become a 20% again, by the way, if the growth happens after that. But that's the way it works. That's the way it works. That's how God has ordained these things to work. 
Follow Jesus, respond to his calling, respond to his call to minister, learn how to minister, replicate yourself into other people. Share with them everything that you know and all the passion you have for service. Be intentional about it, okay? That's what Jesus did. And these guys, they went on to do a lot. There were a lot of fishermen in Capernaum and beside the Sea of Galilee. We know the names of four of them because they followed Jesus. There were probably others that went on to catch more fish. There were others that maybe went on to become uh, more wealthy, maybe had bigger families, more ha- maybe had more stable lives, maybe lived longer because they didn't get persecuted to death. But we don't name cities and universities after them because they didn't follow Jesus. These guys did. Look what Jesus accomplished through them. Let's seek to be the same, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we love the way that you set it up to make disciples. Disciples make disciples. And I remember the people who poured into me. And without them, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. And I thank you for them. And Lord, please help everyone here to replicate themselves as believers, as workers in the kingdom, as pillars of Faith Christian Church. Help us, Lord, to become fishers of men. And we pray this morning, Lord, for our fellowship around the table. Please bless it. We thank you for the food. In Jesus' name. Amen.